Amen. Praise God. You may be seated. Thank you, musicians and singers. Today, let me just say two things before we look to God's Word. Number one, happy Father's Day to all you fathers that are here. Praise God for every single one of you. You know, the Bible calls us as fathers, as husbands, to love our family and to lay down our lives for our family. And I pray that that's the kind of father you are today, willing to lay your life down for those that you love in your family. And we also pray that you will be the great example to your children, to your wife, the great example of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. As we saw in those slides before the, the service today, if you didn't catch that, the greatest, the, the greatest privilege of living a life as a man, as a man, the greatest responsibility we have as men is to show people Jesus Christ in the way that we live and honor one another. And I pray that God is doing a great work in your life and that your children will say, I can tell you one thing about my dad, he loves Jesus Christ and he follows him. And I pray that that's true for all of you here today. Amen? Happy Father's Day. So if you've come here today, if you didn't already receive a gift, we do have a gift for you uh, that maybe Brother Hendrick or Clemens has passed out. If you haven't gotten it yet, we want to make sure you do. So please don't leave without that gift here today. Frank is, is celebrating a very wonderful Father's Day because his oldest son, Luca, is home from school from Holland. So praise God for that, that you have your whole family with you. Even your in-laws are with you today. So amen. We pray that God will completely surround you today with such great love. And uh, Luca, it's good to see you again. You're going to have to join us Friday night for our youth time. All right. Uh, everybody in our youth has already said that. Pastor Heath, please tell Luca to come on Friday night. So there you go. All right. Happy Father's Day, everybody. And my second announcement is this. You know, in the, at the end of service, we always say that if you have an offering to bring or to give, that white box that's in the back that you just slip the envelope inside, well, that white box comes with a key to keep it secure. And we don't have that key today. Therefore, we have no white box for offering. Therefore, we have to literally take up offering today. You remember we used to do that a long time ago? We used to have ushers kind of spread out and, and come through the aisles and rows and take up your offering. So what we're going to do today, we actually planned to do this in July, but evidently the Lord had a different plan. He wanted to start it today. So with that, at the end of the sermon today, when we close in prayer for today's sermon, we're going to take a time of offering. So if you have offering that you brought today, when the ushers come by during that time, if you have an offering today, just slip it into the bag and we'll collect it in that way. And just to let you know, we're just going to start doing that from now on. Okay? No more white box. No more key to the white box. We'll start actually making offering a part of our worship service like we used to. Amen? You with me? Amen. All right. So let's get started with today's sermon message, which this is how the Holy Spirit always works. Today's sermon title is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And I didn't plan that around Father's Day. This just happens to be where we are. And this is just a, a title that I thought really sums up the verses that we read today. And it just so happens to be Father's Day today. How deep the Father's love for us. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 6 to 11. And while you turn to that, let me just say that last Friday morning, 
I hurt my back, which I usually do about once a year now, and uh, it, it crippled me on Friday and for most of yesterday, uh, but I'm able to move around a little bit today, but I might not be as jumpy as normal. Uh, who knows what's going to happen, but I'm just going to try to stay right here in this little section here, not move around too much, but I did hurt my back, and it's very sensitive and tight right now, but praise God for the strength he gives us. Romans chapter 5. Please stand with me as I begin from verse 6. Remember that high mountain we were on last time? That great mountain of faith where we look out? Well, now Paul says in verse 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amen. You may be seated. How deep the Father's love for us. Last time we were in Romans, we were on that great mountain of faith as we looked out and we considered all that we have because of Jesus Christ. That peace we have with God and that acceptance with God. To know that everything that comes our way, the Lord leads us through all things. The love of God that's been poured into our life. But today we're going from that great mountaintop and today the Spirit of God brings us to the deep ocean waters of the love of God. And I'm telling you today that when we search the depths of these oceans of the love of God, these oceans have no bottom. There is a limitless supply. There is no bottom to the depths of the oceans of God's love. And that's what we're going to consider today. I was reading in the Bible in the Old Testament this past week in the book of Ezekiel. And God is speaking to Israel, his people. And he reminds them that in the beginning, way back when God first called Abraham and began to build that nation of Israel, God reminds them that when I first found you, it was as though you were an abandoned child, meaning you had no hope in this world. You were lost, you were hopeless with nobody to take care of you. And you, had, you would have died in that state. But I came and I said, live. And so you lived. And God says, and then I came to you again. And I looked upon you. And it was time for you to be loved. God, when he looked upon Israel, they were in great need. They were in Egypt. They were captives. They were slaves. And God knew the one thing they needed above all other things they needed to be loved. And so he said it was the time of love. And God loved them. He says, I washed you. I clothed you. I adorned you because I love you. And all throughout the Old Testament, you'll read that all that God had done for Israel was because of that. He loved them. 
And when you come to the end of the Old Testament, the last book, Malachi, Malachi is giving one final word to the people of Israel, one final message, and it begins like this. I have loved you, says the Lord. God has loved his people, and he has demonstrated in such wonderful ways. And today, I want us to see this same God loves us, just as he did for Israel. So I want to show you today how he found us, what he's done for us, how he has lavished us with his love, and how wonderful this love is. Oh, how deep the Father's love is for us. And today we're going to consider three things about God's love. Number one, what God's love proves to us. Number two, what God's love provides for us. And number three, what God's love produces in us. All right, so let's begin today with number one, what God's love proves to us. Well, first of all, it is unconditional. Look at verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That verse right there, first of all, it tells us how God found us. Paul says, when we were still without strength. To the Jew who's trying to win God's favor by obeying the law, they are still without strength. To the Gentile, who's still trying to use religion as a means to find God's grace, they are still without strength. To the one who says, well, I'll just find my own way. They call themselves free thinkers. I'm going to find my own way to God. They call themselves free thinkers. They're not free at all. They are prisoners of sin and still without strength. Every religion, every so-called spiritual experience, every philosophy is without strength. A couple of weeks ago, we considered that story in the sermon, Wind and Waves, when the disciples were stranded out on, that, on those waters, fighting against the windstorm, and they just had no more power, no more strength to row against that wind. After all that straining, they didn't need more strength. They didn't need new techniques. They didn't need a new method. What they needed was a savior. And that's exactly what they got when Jesus came walking on the water. How did God find us? When we were still without strength. The verse also tells us when he found us. It says, in due time, Christ died. In due time. It was an appointed time determined by God himself. The Bible says that before the foundation of the world... Jesus was already the lamb slain for us. And when God in the very beginning created the sun and the moon and the stars, and he said that these things will be a sign of seasons, he created a calendar. He created days and months and years. And from that very beginning, God knew how many years, months, days, hours, seconds it would be 
until Jesus Christ would come and die for us. In due time, Jesus came. Now someone might ask, well, why did God wait so long to send Jesus? Why not send him sooner? Well, maybe there are two reasons. Number one, God sets the time. God set the time that 2,000 years ago Christ came. It's up to God what he does with his own calendar. It's in God's timing, in his appointed time. Number two, I think if God had said from the very beginning, I'm going to send my son to die for you, people would have said, oh, God, you don't need to do that. I mean, that's kind of overdoing it, right? You don't have to send your son. I can do this myself. Don't worry, God. I can fix myself. No need, God, to send your son. It's just like me, actually. In many things in life, people always offer me help, and I refuse it. And I say, you don't have to do that. And then what happens? As I start to get into the work, I say, oh, I wish I let them help me. Just like last Friday, early in the morning, when I was picking up things and gathering things in my house, and my daughter Yaya says, Dad, do you want help? No, Yaya, you don't have to do that. I can do it myself. And that led to crippling pain in my back on Friday, Saturday, and a little bit today. We always want to do it on our own. And maybe if God was ready to send Jesus to the Garden of Eden to die for Adam and Eve, they would have said, no need, God. You don't have to do that. We can do this ourselves. You know, I think one day when we're in heaven, when God shows us how he worked in our life, when God is going to show us what would have happened if he never found us and saved us, we're going to look at that time in our life of salvation and say, oh God, thank you. You saved me just in time. Thank you. One day, we'll all say that to the Lord. Again, this verse also tells us why he found us. It says that Christ died for the ungodly. He found us, and when he did, we were ungodly sinners without any hope in the world. And Jesus came to die. Do you know those words that are in that verse? Christ died for the ungodly? That's, I believe, at least the third time that ungodly is used in Romans. Do you remember several sermons ago when we were in Romans chapter 4 and we began to talk about the life and faith of Abraham? Do you remember the very first sermon where we talked about Abraham's faith? It was a simple faith. He just believed God. But we also said that it was a miraculous faith. Why? Because Abraham believed in God that God justifies the ungodly. Meaning God takes an ungodly man or woman and he makes them right. He justifies them. He gives them a right standing with him. Or he credits them with righteousness. That's a very transactional kind of language. When you trusted in Jesus, God credited you with the righteousness of Christ. And God says as a transaction, I justify you, even though you are ungodly. And when we looked at that in Romans chapter 4, I called that miraculous. 
because it's an absolute miracle that God takes an ungodly person and credits that ungodly person with righteousness. That's a miracle. Amen? But if that transaction is a miracle, what do we call this now? When it says that Christ died for the ungodly. I think that is a miracle of all miracles. That Jesus gave his life not for people who were gifted and talented, not for righteous good people. He gave his life for sinners, ungodly, wicked people. That is the miracle of all miracles. Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. Not only is this love unconditional, it's also incomparable. You can't compare anything with this. Paul says in verse 7 and 8, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we read these verses about a righteous man dying or perhaps someone laying down their life for a good person, we tend to think, what are the examples of this? Because evidently Paul knows there are few examples of this where someone actually lays down their life for someone else. You might think of men or women who are in the military fighting a battle together and those soldiers are so loyal to one another, they are willing to lay down their lives for each other. And we say, wow, that's loyalty, that's devotion, that's love. Yes. Or sometimes we will say, fathers, are you willing to lay down your life, literally lay down your life for your children? And we say, yes. Why? because I love my children. They are mine. They belong to me. I lay my life down for my wife, for my children. Paul knows that this happens. It might be seldom, but it happens. And we tend to think about these examples. But who would die for their enemy? Who would die for the person that hates them? Who would die for the wicked person? We're talking about dying for the wives that we love or dying for our children or soldiers dying for those that they are loyal to. What about dying for the murderer, for the liar, for the idolatrous, for the adulterer, for the perverted, for the evil? Who would dare die for someone like that? The Bible says, while we were still sinners, filled with murder, wickedness, lies, perversions. Even then, Christ died for us. What can be compared to that kind of love? God's love is proven to us in this, that Christ died for us. Amen. Now the Bible talks about a few times about how God loves people. Let me give you three examples, and I want you to see something that's related, something that's in common with all three of these verses. Number one, the Bible says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him 
will not perish but have everlasting life. Okay? Number two, Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. Number three, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, this life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. What do you find in common in all three of these verses of love? They all involve God demonstrating his love by the giving of his only begotten son, Jesus. He gave his only begotten son. Jesus loves his church and gave himself for her. Jesus loves me and gave himself for me. Whether we're talking about the world or the church or me, Jesus gave himself in love. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. His love is proven to us by the fact that Jesus died for us. Number two, God's love provides for us. What does it provide? Well, in verse 9, Paul says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Those words, much more. Paul uses that quite a few times in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to get into more next week. But why does Paul use that phrase? What does he mean by much more? Paul uses that phrase in order to compare two things. To compare a greater work to a lesser work. Not that anything God does is less than anything else, but what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to build your faith and encourage you to help you to believe. In other words, listen, if God can do this, or if God did do this, then certainly God will do this. So to compare those two kinds of things, Paul uses that phrase, much more. So watch. Here's how Paul does that. He says, first of all, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So here's what Paul is saying. If the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse our sin, even down through the years of our past, to wash away every evil thought, word, and deed. The fact that all sin has been washed away and wiped out. If the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to pay the price of our sin and to give us a brand new standing with God, then we shall be saved from the wrath of God that is coming upon the world. If God has done all of this already, then you can be certain we shall be saved from wrath of God. Amen. Before I get into the next one, we need to learn to do this often in our life, I believe. We need to have those times where we say these much mores. Let me give you an example in my own life and also from the scriptures. When I think of an example, I can actually think of many in my life, but here is one that always comes to mind. 
When we came back from America about five or six years ago, I promised many of you that I was coming back here with an English Bible, a New King James English Bible, which is what I always preach from, and I wanted you to have it. And so when I went to America, we were able to get like 30 Bibles to bring back to you. And when we got back, we found out in Jakarta a box was missing. One of our boxes that we had packed to bring all the way back here. It was missing. And when we asked the people in Jakarta, they said, we don't know where it is. So we came back home in Samarang and we started to unpack our stuff. And lo and behold, the one box that was missing, it had some of our personal items in it, but it had like seven or eight of those Bibles. And I said, oh God, not for the sake of my clothing, but for the sake of those Bibles, please help us get that back. And so my wife called Jakarta. They don't know where it is. And then she called Taipei. They don't know where it is. And then she called New York, and they don't know where it is. Nobody has seen that box or that package. And so one morning, we had to try to make it a plan to call New York once again. And we got up early in the morning. We were sitting at the table, and I just so happened to have my Bible with me. And I was reading from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. So I figured that while my wife is talking on the phone with New York, I'm just going to be reading. Let her do all the work. And so as I'm reading, I'm reading about how God created the world. He spoke, and there it was. What wasn't there, what couldn't be seen, he spoke, and there it was. Now I'm listening to my wife back and forth with these people who don't know where our box is, and I said, okay, you know what, God? You are able to make stars appear that weren't there before. You are able to make the sun, the moon, and every galaxy that nobody could see, and there it was because you said so. God, if you can do that, then certainly you can make our box appear to someone. It's out there somewhere. God, you can do this. Make it appear to someone and help us get this box. And about two hours later, my wife had called again to New York, and all of a sudden somebody said, oh, we found it. It's been here the whole time. We just didn't see it. And eventually, after about a week, that box came here. And some of you right now, I think David and Riska, you are, amen, you are holding two of those Bibles that God made appear out of nowhere. Sometimes we need to remember these things. When we're faced with a challenge, stop for a moment and say, but wait, God, I know what you're able to do. I know what you've done in the past. And if you can do that, Certainly you can do this. David was walking down to the valley to fight a giant, a warrior, a Philistine named Goliath. And even King Saul said, David, you're just a boy. You're from the fields with the sheep. You can't do this. You know what David said? In the past, when a lion came to my sheep, or when a bear came to my sheep and stole one of the lambs away, I caught up with that lion. I caught up with that bear. And through the strength of the Lord, I rescued that lamb, and I struck down the lion. And I struck down the bear. And you know what David's attitude was? If God can do that, then certainly he can give me victory over this Philistine giant. And David went and slayed that giant in the valley. If God can do this, 
Certainly, he can do this. Number one, Paul is saying, if God has already done the most glorious work of forgiving all your sin, if he can do that, then most certainly you shall be saved from his wrath. And here's a second much more. In verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What's the comparison here? What's the much more in this verse? It's this. If the death of Jesus, his death on the cross, if that death can make enemies of God reconciled to God, then what would you imagine the resurrection, never-ending life of Jesus can do? If his death did the miracle of bringing us to peace with God, just imagine what the power of his endless life can do. What can it do? Paul says, we shall be saved by his life. Amen? If God has already done this, certainly he will do this. We shall be saved from wrath. We shall be saved by the life of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. This, this is what God has provided to us. Jesus has reconciled us to God. Now, no matter where you are in Scripture, you'll never read that God was reconciled to us. It's always we are reconciled to God. Because, you know, if you are reconciled to someone, it means you're the one who's at fault. You're the one who did something. It's like a, a married couple, husbands and wives, and you've all been through it. We have differences of opinion, and we get into a little bit of conflict. And those things should be treated with love and grace and patience. But sometimes you just got to have your way. And it turns into a fight, an argument. And then the wife says things she shouldn't have said. And the husband does things he shouldn't have done. And what do we have to do? We have to reconcile each to one another. Both are at fault. Both did something wrong, and they are reconciled to one another. Or if it's the husband, which is mostly the case, the husband who does something wrong, right, ladies? Then the husband has to be reconciled to his wife. God is not reconciled to us. He is not at fault. He is without sin. It's not God who failed, made a mistake, did something wrong. God never speaks when he shouldn't. God doesn't do things and says, oops, I shouldn't have done that. No, we are the guilty party. We are the ones who have rebelled, done things that are wrong, sinned against him. But the good news is Jesus reconciles us to God. Amen. This is exactly what God in his great love has provided for us. Reconciliation. Last, number three. What God's love produces in us. What it produces in us. And for that we look at verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation a long, long time ago in a perfect garden where walking with God in unbroken fellowship was the daily experience of Adam and Eve. But Adam and Eve would one day rebel and disobey God's command. And their disobedience was called sin. And when sin entered the world, so did every suffering and every evil thing we endure today. So many times we are ready to blame God for suffering, blame God for sin and evil in the world. The blame is ours. It's what we have done to our own world. It's because we're sinners and we are the ones that cause the suffering and the evil in the world. We are the ones to blame. Sin. This is why our world is haunted by demons, by disease, by death. It's why we have graveyards, hospitals, prisons, and mental institutions. Our world is ruined by vileness, misery, hatred, war, famine, death, and decay. This is what sin produces. And in the day of Adam's rebellion, God knew what would become of the world. And so did Adam. The Bible says that when they sinned, when they heard God begin to walk through the garden, they were ashamed and they ran and hid themselves, covered in the shame of the guilt of their sin, because that's exactly what the guilt of sin does. It leaves us in our shame. We are ashamed, ashamed, and we hide ourselves, if it were possible, from the presence of God. Then, in due time, God sent his son. And when Jesus came into our world and lived a perfect, sinless life, loving all people, compassionate, wonderful, holy, beautiful, it was man in his sin that spat in the face of Jesus. They arrested him. They ripped out his beard. They plowed his back with scourging. They nailed him to a cross. And while he hanged there, they mocked him, insulted him, and they laughed at him until he died. Now, we would not be surprised at all. We would completely understand it. If verse 11 read that now we have received the wrath of God and judgment, that would be perfectly understandable. But that's not what we read, is it? That's not the words of that verse, is it? Instead, wonder of wonders, it reads, we have now received reconciliation. We have received reconciliation. And God says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. No longer do we run, no longer do we hide. We come to God through Jesus Christ, and it's as though God, after he saves us and washes us and gives us a brand new life, a new standing, justified, peace with God, acceptance, everlasting life, now God gives you the command, rejoice in God. 
be glad and sing. Give thanks to the Lord. This is what God produces in us by his love. He produces rejoicing. Who is like our God? Who could have done what he has done for us? Amen. No longer running, no longer hiding, but rejoicing. And I ask you this question. Who is like God? Amen. Sister Verna, musicians, would you come? Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. His love, it is proven to us. He proves that it is unconditional. He proves that it is incomparable. That love is proven when we see Jesus crucified for us. Number two, his love, it provides for us. What does it provide? Reconciliation with him. Peace with God. And last, let's look at what it produces. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Be glad. Be glad, brothers and sisters. Your sins are forgiven. And God calls you his child. Rejoice. Amen. Amen. I ask Sister Verna and the worship team to sing this hymn together with us today. So if you would stand. And as we sing the words of this song, let them minister to your heart. And I just pray that as you sing them or as you hear them, consider the love that has been poured upon your life. And today, receive that love. Amen? Receive it. Praise God. <laughs>